Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Odin Lowsley and I'm a Griffith Design and Business student. I'm glad to see you all here for our final Exploring Asia session on internships and careers in the Asia Pacific. My co-host tonight, James Fairley, is an ex, as you may have guessed, Griffith student and New Colombo Plan scholar who studied a Bachelor of Laws slash Governments and International Relations and is now undertaking a Masters of Governance and Public Policy. Jeez, that's a mouthful. Before I get into our lineup, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I reside, the Yugambeh people, and pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging. I would also like to ask all guests who, you know, aren't speaking to please keep the microphone and cameras off for this session. If you have any questions at all throughout the session, we'd love to see them in the chat, unless you're curious about something like the meaning of life, in which case I think it might take a little longer to get back to you. Now, onto our lineup for tonight. We have Elise Giles, Brad McConaughey, and joining us through pre-recorded message from the great outdoors, or well, Darwin, is Rob Malicki. Griffith alumnus Elise Giles is a capability development manager at AsiaLink Business. She's currently delivering Australia's Leaders Program and was responsible for project managing the New Colombo Plan Ambassador and Alumni Program in partnership with DFAP. Elise is also a director on the board of the Australia-Vietnam Young Leadership Dialogue and Steering Committee Director. She's a former Prime Minister's Australia Asia Scholar to Hong Kong and has worked and studied across Asia, including Vietnam, Indonesia, Hong Kong, Singapore and South Korea, and has a wealth of experience engaging with government, private and community sectors in these international environments. Dr. Bradley McConaughey, also Griffith alumnus, is a senior research officer at RMIT Vietnam. He started his career in Beijing with the Australia Studies Centre at Peking University and UNESCO, in which he managed international development and research projects in China, Mongolia, North Korea, South Korea, and Japan. Following this, he worked in Thailand for private companies seeking to develop their rising executive staff to better understand international business culture. Most recently, he has taken up a position in Ho Chi Minh City, working for RMIT Vietnam, managing international research consortiums between Australia, Vietnam, and Europe, and maintains an adjunct fellowship in the Griffith Asia Institute, in which he continues his research into public Australian public diplomacy in the Indo-Pacific region. In 2020, he was recognized by Griffith University for his contribution to public diplomacy research with the Research Excellence Award, and was the recipient of the Chancellor's Medal. Rob Malicki is the co-architect of DFAT's New Colombo Plan, founder and CEO of AIM Overseas, CEO of the Global Society, and founder of A Life That Travels. He's passionate about overseas study and the way that it can transform young people's lives. His mission, since his own student exchange in 2000, has been to help more young Australians make the most out of their own overseas study experiences. With over 15 years of experience, he's one of Australia's leading experts and commentators on the outbound mobility of Australian uni students. All right, so now that we know who's who, and you should be able to spot Rob, I think he'll be the one hanging from a tree. I'll let Rob take it away with some stories from his experience in the Asia Pacific. G'day and welcome to Darwin. I'm Rob Malicki. <laughs> You're probably wondering why I'm hanging upside down. Well, I'll get to that. But first, I'd like to start with a little bit of a story. On one of my first trips to Asia, I was heading to Myanmar, and we were flying in late in the afternoon and got uh, ourselves touted and headed into town with not very much money, but we'd managed to get ourselves pretty well organised. We had credit cards, traveller's checks, and some cash. And we put ourselves up for the night, and the next day when our tour guide came back, we said, right, we need to go and withdraw some money from an ATM machine. And he looked at us and he said, oh, I'm sorry, because of the US embargo on Burma, there are no ATM machines here. You can't withdraw any cash. You have only got the cash that you're carrying with you to use for your entire trip here in Burma. Hmm, we were there for three and a half weeks, two of us, and we had 100 US dollars in cash. I'll tell you what happens next in just a moment. Well, I'm really sorry that I can't be joining you live in person today. I'm here in Darwin in the Northern Territory. It's about 40 degrees here and absolutely gorgeous, but 
tomorrow I'm pushing on when you guys are going to be watching this, I'm going to be pushing on to Kakadu and internet connection down there isn't going to be so strong. So there's nothing I would have loved more to have been doing than hanging out with you guys. But uh, unfortunately, connection is not going to permit that. So here we go. You know, the first time I went um, and did a business trip to Asia, I was uh, visiting a partner and um, we went for lunch. We were sitting at this table and uh, there were probably like six or eight people who I'd never met before. You know, big boss, the second big boss, and then a couple of people I sort of knew and then other people, right? So this huge table. And um, the food started arriving. And so I started to eat and they kept serving me and I sort of kept eating and I was encouraging other people at the table to eat and um, nobody was eating. <laughs> it was just me. And the food just kind of kept coming and I just didn't know what to do. So I kept eating and eating and eating and more eating until like I, I couldn't eat anymore. And um, then I stopped. And then the big boss said, oh, have you finished? And I said, oh yes. And they went, good. And then everybody around the table started to eat. <laughs> and it was like such a big wake up, right? Because I hadn't done any kind of cultural preparation for this particular country. Um, and so to sort of end up in that situation was, was hilarious, right? Um, but I think there's something interesting about culture because it doesn't matter where that country, um, which country that was, or which part of that country it was, because even within macro cultures, you have micro cultures. And think about it, for example, like if I were to be starting an internship or a new job in a plumbing supplies company here in Darwin, if I showed up in shorts and my thongs, would that be perfectly okay? Uh, maybe not the thongs, but definitely the shorts would be totally fine. But wearing this same getup, going to a big consulting company on Collins Street in Melbourne or at Barangaroo in Sydney, that obviously would not cut it. And so the most important thing to remember when you're looking for internships, when you're looking for work, when you're starting to engage with the Asia Pacific is forget whatever it is you've already learned because inside that culture that you may already know somewhat, you're gonna find micro um, cultures that you don't yet understand. And so with that in mind, I've got two really strong pieces of advice for you. Well, there's army barracks right near here, so I figured that might be an appropriate scene. <laughs> Two bits of advice. The first is um, listen with the intent to understand. Think about every time you're in a conversation and somebody's talking, and that moment where suddenly you realize you have a story that you can throw in after they finish speaking. The moment that we realize that we've got a story that we can tell, we stop listening to the people that are talking to us. And the problem with that is that we actually miss the nuances of the stories that they're telling and we miss their intention. So the first thing you need to hone yourself on, that you need to practice and practice and practice, is to listen with the intent to understand. And what that means is literally, when somebody's talking to you and you have that flash of a moment in your mind that says, oh, I can now tell my story about uh, Malaysia, um, you need to repress that and be like, actually, no, I'm not gonna tell my story about Malaysia. What I wanna do is fully understand what this person is talking about and then follow up with another question. Listen with the intent to understand. Now I can tell you what, you can practice this for months, you're still gonna be crap at it. The more you practice, the better you will get and that will serve you incredibly well when it comes to listening for those nuances in culture when you're out there in workplaces around the Asia Pacific. The second thing which I think is absolutely essential for you to start working on is, is, is the second thing. And the second thing is, <laughs> it's about people, it's about us. <laughs> and it's about our body language. So think about um, how many situations you're in where people are talking to you and they're doing stuff with their hands, right? Um, it doesn't matter which culture you're in, which country you're in, it could be here in Darwin in Australia, it could be in Beijing in China. There is so much that's communicated to us via people's body language. Now there is some variance in body language across cultures, of course. There are hand gestures that might be specific and you can research those. But a lot of stuff is, is non-verbal. And if we pay attention to the way that people are holding themselves, they're closing themselves off, they're open and they're engaging with us, we can really pick up some subtleties in how people are feeling and what they're thinking. And that allows you to respond 
to how people are thinking and feeling. And that allows us to respond more accurately and more compassionately with culture, which is gonna take you really, really far. So like we could talk for ages about the differences between different companies and different cultures and the reality is there's just too much diversity out there in the world. And the best thing that you can work on if you really wanna do this well is to learn how to listen really well, to observe really well, and then to respond appropriately. Because there, you'll definitely be winning friends and influencing people over this. If you really wanna get good at observing people and observing cultures, what I would strongly recommend you do is get hold of a copy of a book called The Definitive Guide to Body Language. It's by Alan and Barbara Pease, P-E-A-S-E. And once you read that book, it will blow you away because you will learn so much about the nonverbal cues that we have as humans, many of which cut across different cultures. And that will be one of those things that helps you to really observe the behavior of people and sometimes even kind of get this insight into what they're thinking without them actually knowing that you can see what they're thinking. <laughs> We're here to talk about internships and careers. And a few years ago, I was working on a project for the Australian government promoting um, a guide that they put together to encourage students to take internships and to go and study in this particular country in Southeast Asia. I won't say which country it was. And um, we basically organized for um, a group of students to come up and do a group internship in a company inside this country. Uh, about a week before that program was about to take place, I flew up there with a colleague from uh, the institute that I was working with, and we went in to see the general manager of the company that was going to be taking this group of students, and um, we sat down for our meeting and we said, right, so we've got 25 students who are going to be starting um, in you know, a week's time, you know, essentially like let's work out exactly what they're going to be working on every day while we're here. The general manager of the company looked at us and said, what are you talking about group? I thought I was taking one intern. And we went, uh, no, we visited you three months ago and explained the whole project and we've emailed you five or six times since. And there's a group of 20 students that are gonna be arriving in a week's time and they need work. And he goes, oh, <laughs> went all pale. And we basically had like this nightmare for a week where we were um, racing around trying to get this program organized to make sure we met the expectations of the students. And the first lesson out of that was really like, um, just because somebody says that it, it, it will be okay or they're listed in a particular guide doesn't mean that everything's okay until you've confirmed and double confirmed everything. This particular guide, for example, listed out a whole bunch of companies and um, when we started calling them to make sure that they would take interns, they were like, no, don't know who you're talking about or they didn't have a contact person that we could be in touch with. And one of the things that you need to be wary about is that um, very often organizations and individuals are, are pleased to please. They want to say yes to things. They want to, um, you know, not save face, but um, they want to be accommodating, right? But then the reality is that that doesn't necessarily fit into their day-to-day -day job. Being an intern, unless you're going into a big structured company where they've got structured internship programs um, or a small organization that's really well organized and. Um, is, is used to dealing with interns, people can say yes, and then when the reality hits them on the head and they realize they have to do that in addition to day-to-day -day work, it doesn't work out as planned. So be very discerning about who you choose and um, make sure that you continue to confirm that everything is okay. Like Odin and James confirming with me like five or six different times that this webinar was gonna be okay and that I was gonna be available and be able to do things. like. Yes, I was super keen to do it and super keen to help out, but hell, I'm on like this trip around Australia and could be uncontactable. So their persistence and diligence in following me up actually managed to get this result. Oh, and if you're wondering, I just don't know if you've ever seen the underside of a, um, a caravan before. It's kind of cool. Heavy duty. <laughs> you know, the second lesson I learned out of that internships project was that, you know, there are cultures that we're really familiar with where things can still go wrong. And there are cultures where, you know, it has a reputation for being completely disorganized and it can be extremely organized. In the case of this particular company we're talking about, the general manager was actually Australian. We should have figured that everything should be okay. That's what we thought. And actually it all turned out to be a nightmare because in the end guys, everything is 
H to H, not B to B, not B to C. So business to business, business to consumer, H to H, human to human. It's all about the people. And you're gonna come across people who are extremely well organized in places where they haven't got a reputation for being organized. And you're gonna come across people who are extremely disorganized in places that are supposed to be really flash. So you've just gotta focus on finding the right people. And that means like just always being ruthless about finding people that you resonate with. Because you know maybe you might find some people that um, are, are awesome and their work style is completely crap and you hate it. Okay, you've got to get out of there, <laughs> fast. You'll know when you find an awesome workplace because it will feel right to you. Now note when I say feel right to you, I'm not talking about feeling comfortable because everything that's truly worthwhile is gonna put you into some kind of level of discomfort because that's where you're gonna grow. But it will feel right. You're gonna feel like you're learning, you're gonna feel like you're moving uh, in the right direction, and you're gonna feel like you're meeting the right kinds of people do not stop until you find that point. And it's always okay to walk away from something that doesn't feel right. And what can you be doing right now to set yourself up for the opportunities that have come? You know, if you guys saw my keynote um, about a month or two ago now, uh, I spoke a lot about the sorts of opportunities that COVID is presenting. Like, honestly, there are gonna be the most amazing opportunities on the other side of COVID. It's the people who do the hard work now that are gonna be rewarded on the other side of this. So what should you be thinking about doing? First and foremost, if you haven't got language skills or your language skills aren't absolutely phenomenal for the countries in which you're intending to work in future or hoping to visit in future, get started on it. It's called Duolingo, it's free, it's an app, and you can do five or 10 minutes a day, more is better, and that will help you like improve some of your skills. There's hundreds of resources to help you improve your language skills online. So go do that, no excuses. The next thing you should be thinking about doing, and I talked a lot about this in the keynote. So by the way, if you didn't see that keynote or if you'd like access to it, um, hit me up on LinkedIn, um, connect with me on LinkedIn, Rob Malicki, uh, and send me a PM and I'll give you access to that keynote so you can see it. I talked a lot about creating content. And what I mean by creating content is finding your ideal audience. So um, let's say that you've got a passion for a particular country and topic area. One of the best things you can be doing right now is establishing yourself as a subject matter expert. And how do you do that? You write content about it, or you film videos about it, or you interview people about it. Interviews are the best guys because you don't need to know anything. You just need to get somebody on a Zoom, hit the record button, and ask them a bunch of questions, right? It is so easy. But what that shows you to be is the subject matter expert. And over time, all of that content that you create and that you put out, whether you're publishing on a website, whether you're publishing it on your LinkedIn profile, whether you're writing for national associations, private organizations, newsletters, it doesn't matter. All of that is building your reputation as a subject matter expert. And that in itself makes you greatly in demand downstream. But once again, it just takes a little bit of time Hit the record button, get writing, do some research, and get your name out there. Because people want to deal with the best people. If your name keeps coming up, they're gonna know that you're one of the best people. Well, that's all I've got time for, guys. It's very hot, I think I'm gonna go swimming. Preferably not with the Crocs. <laughs> I will finish my story though. So we'd been in Myanmar for like less than 24 hours, and we realized that we were gonna need more money in order to do this three and a half week trip around the country. And so what we did is we asked the guide, well, where can we go and change some traveler's checks? And at the time, there was this whole underground black market where you could go and exchange money. And in Myanmar, we ended up, in, in uh, Yangon, we ended up paying like a 10% commission um, in order to change, I think like 300 US dollars. And we thought, oh no, we don't wanna carry more than 300 US dollars with us. We'll change more elsewhere um, as we travel around the country. But the 10% commission we paid in Yangon ends up being like going up to 40% commission when we got up to Mandalay. And so we didn't end up changing any more money and we ended up doing our entire three and a half week trip for two people um, all around Myanmar for like 350 US dollars, which is the most efficient travel that I've ever done. <laughs> but not necessarily the most comfortable. But hey, being comfortable isn't where the learning happens.
Guys, have an amazing session today and good luck with whatever you're getting up to. Always feel free to send me an email, rob at globalsociety.com.au or hit me up on LinkedIn, you know where to find me. You guys are superstars. Thanks for chatting. Have a great day. Thank you for sharing, Rob. I tip my hat to you, literally. Regarding the tree, I've heard he's been uh, recently trying to branch out. Maybe he's just climbing the company tree. Whatever it is, I think we can recognize his first story was a little nutty. Okay, I'm sorry for that. But in all seriousness, Rob gave a lot of great tips there, especially about listening to understand and managing to survive off a little amount when traveling, although maybe not by choice. Elise, I'd love to hear from you about some of your experiences in the Asia Pacific and hope you can shed a little light on how you first made your start in the region. Great. Thank you so much, Odin. I feel obliged after Rob's um, great video to say, G'day friends, or Xin Chao Kak Dan, for those um, who speak Vietnamese. Uh, it's really great to be online with all of you, um, but also as a Griffith University alumni, um, it's a real pleasure. So um, feel free to say hello, g'day, Xin Chao, uh, in the chat box in whatever language you, know, you do know. Um, it's great to um, see so many of you, but also be nice to hear from you. So jump uh, in the box now and do that. But before I share uh, my engagement with the region, I too want to reflect on the fact that I'm joining you from the homelands of the Jugger and the Turrbal people, and I want to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging, and anyone else on the call uh, who is Aboriginal Tosha Islander. Um, now, as Odin introduced, I'm um, proud to work at AsiaLink Business, and um, we're based at the University of Melbourne, um, but we're the National Centre for Building Asia Capability. And so my role uh, is a capability development manager. And so we're, um, our core business is building an Asia-capable workforce. And so what does that really mean? Um, and I see that Andrew Tring is also an NCP scholar that's joined the call today, who's interning with us. Um, I've been working with Andrew basically to equip organisations uh, across a range of sectors in Australia to be Asia-ready. And so that's developing your critical skills, knowledge and networks. But in addition to my day job, I also um, have a night job and a weekend job. And that's uh, my role as a board director, but also a steering committee director of the Australia-Vietnam Young Leadership Dialogue. And we're really driving an ambitious agenda over the next 18 months and working with James Fairley, who's on this call. He's also joined our team, which is a real pleasure for us. We've got a team of 12 incredible Australians and Vietnamese uh, who are passionate uh, about advancing sustainable prosperity through a deeper Australia and Vietnam bilateral relationship um, but also towards accelerating our efforts towards a global agenda, and that's the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And so that's a little bit about me, um, but I guess I wanted to disclaim the fact that this has, these roles that I'm in right now have come after deep and extended engagement with the region. And so I worked out this morning, um, I was preparing for today, and I thought it's actually been nine years of voluntary roles engaging with Asia, um, that has got me to this point. And so in my mind, I see, you know, grit, persistence, but also, um, sorry, also a strategy um, that I've had in mind. So I want to provide that as a bit of a, uh, a basis to, to a career, uh, a, a successful career, I guess, uh, in Asia. And so my first experiences started um, really at, at a university level. Uh, I grew up in, in regional Queensland, uh, and Asia really wasn't a, a, an option for me. Um, but I was fortunate that um, someone had given me the opportunity to travel to South Korea and I had to get a passport. Um, no one in my family had ever traveled overseas. So this is really a pivotal moment for me and my family. And at the point, uh, I've, I've shared the story before with other um, Griffith University students, but it was actually um, the same week that the North Korean president died and the leadership was being passed to his son. And so my parents had grave concerns that why would I ever be going to Korea? Little did they realize the difference between the North and the South. So that was a little bit interesting. And now I reflect on that, on that. I think, you know, my parents aren't Asia capable and my job right now is to do that. So that it's a bit, a bit of fun, but um, I guess that pivotal South Korea trip really um, allowed me to build upon that through other, other programs in Singapore. I'm going to Beijing, the Griffith Asia Institute, which I reflected with Natasha and also Brad, who, who's speaking tonight, I had the opportunity to attend with him. And it was at that point where I realized that my heart really belonged uh, engaging with the region. 
and instigated a longer term um, study exchange, but also internships underneath the Prime Minister's Australia Award in Hong Kong. Um, and then I quickly came home because I was determined um, to get a job. And I worked for the Queensland government for five years. But, you know, after that five year period, I, I knew that I had to return back to the region. And, you know, how I got into this, this space professionally really was through my voluntary engagements. And that actually started uh, when I was living in Hong Kong, I set up the Australia China Youth Association Hong Kong chapter. And I think that it was through my sustained and relentless engagement. And I say sustained and rel relentless intentionally because you can't just engage with the region, um, you know, it's, uh, just a light touch. You have to really have that deep engagement. So it's through that engagement and then, um, I moved to Vietnam to undertake a role with the Australian Volunteer Program, which is a DFAT program. And um, that role was working with the government of Vietnam, uh, working in actually infectious disease policy. And, you know, funny enough, actually, my colleagues uh, at the, are at the front line of um, Vietnam's COVID response, which is incredibly successful for those that have been following it. Uh, and then I um, also undertook a role in Indonesia after that as a second assignment working uh, with, with villages in terms of their social development programs at a capacity um, uh, building level. So I'm helping support the locals team. But actually the, the trick here is that the reason I was successful with my position at AsiaLink Business was because my current boss actually saw me working on this volunteer, um, on the volunteer role with the Australia Vietnam Young Leadership Dialogue. And it was, the realization that people are watching you even when you don't expect it. And so it was incredibly compelling for me to return back to Melbourne to, I guess, reverse engineer the thought that I was going to be having a long you know, career in the region, but actually knowing that you can have an, a career uh, with the Asia Pacific from Australia. And so I'm gonna end there because I think I've thrown a few ideas out, um, but also provide a bit of experience uh, in terms of where I'm at in my career and throw across to Brad, who I've, you know, uh, met in, um, in Thailand, in, in China, and I'm um, looking to see you in, um, in Vietnam soon, Brad, but I'm going to hand across to you. Yeah. Thanks very much, Elise. It does kind of feel full circle doing this with you tonight. Um, we first met in Beijing when we did the, the short term trip with the Griffith Asia Institute. And I think for myself as well, that was, really a moment as an undergraduate student where I was trying to, to figure out what it is I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to be in research, uh, but I had no idea in what capacity or what topic area. And that was really a pivotal trip for me to, to go with my honours supervisor, who was the director of the Asia Institute at the time. And I remember meeting a whole bunch of expats that were working in different industries and just just thinking how exciting all of their jobs were and, and how exciting life within the Asian region and having a career in the Asian region uh, really seemed. So that was kind of the start of me trying to navigate that kind of career. And it has had a lot of ups and downs. And so I thought I'd share a few of my lessons. Um, I think there's three key lessons that I've had. And the first one really comes down to personal networks when it comes to working in Asia you can apply for, and as I did, hundreds of positions online. And if you don't have a personal contact or a face-to-face -face relationship with anyone, it's very unlikely that you're going to get far. And building on that is time in country or time in the region. Uh, people really respect if they can see that you've spent years learning the culture through internships and study programs and things like that. So it's really important to get started in your undergrad and not wait until you're looking for a job. And the final one is flexibility and resilience because it's not just a linear trajectory when it comes to a career in Asia. It really does take a lot of grit and hard work, as Elise said, to build those uh, long-standing relationships. Uh, so can I get my slides up, please, if they're available? Um, so what I thought I would do today is talk you through a few of my experiences moving from China to Thailand and now where I live in Saigon in Vietnam. So could I go to my second slide, please? 
So as I said, my Asia experience really started in my undergrad when I went to Beijing with a group of Griffith students. And then when I came back, I really knew at that point that uh, China was going to be such an important part of my research and um, the, the future of Australia's uh, economy. And so I decided that I would do my PhD in Australia-China relations. And because of that short-term trip, I actually took a focus of international education as a tool of public diplomacy. So um, that's when I really started to look for opportunities to engage with China because I knew I needed to get that genuine in-country experience. So um, I had a look at every opportunity that was available. I looked at internships, I looked at everything I could, and I found a three-month internship at Peking University in the Australia Studies Centre. So as part of my PhD, I went and did a three-month research project in Beijing. And that was really the moment that cemented my experience with China and allowed me to put in applications for uh, postgraduate government scholarships. And I was really fortunate to get an Endeavour scholarship to go to back to Peking Uni, but for two years this time and do my research. And that's when I started working for UNESCO, which was a really interesting story. I hadn't had my internship set up at all. And so I was looking for an opportunity where I could work for a year and engage with uh, education research, which is obviously a very niche area. And I was learning Chinese at the time. And the girl that sat next to me in Chinese class, I didn't know, but I went and had dinner with her family. And this is where that personal, you never know when an opportunity is going to come up. Her dad turned out to be the general, uh, the director general of UNESCO. And he, we were talking about education policy and, and he said, look, we've got some internships open at the Beijing cluster office. Why don't you go in for an interview with the director? And that really was an amazing experience for me. I, I ended up working there for a year and I was working on development research in uh, all the countries that were mentioned earlier. And I was offered a, a job interview in Bangkok in Thailand, which is where the headquarters was and I thought okay well this is it this is the start of my career this is what I wanted I've now got this international job with the UN and that's where the resilience comes in because at that time that's when President Trump um, pulled out of UNESCO and so I was in Thailand with no job and unemployed and so I had to I was teaching English just to get by and I thought I want to remain in the region and just keep looking for other opportunities. And um, I was really lucky after a little stint, I, I went back home for a few months and uh, that's when this current research, I said the final slide, please. Uh, and that's when this opportunity came up and I saw it online and it was so perfect for everything that I had been working on. And so I'm now currently managing international research consortiums. So, uh, international uh, government aid. Uh, I work with researchers in different areas to put in proposals and to manage some of these international projects. So um, that's kind of my story in a nutshell. Thank you. Well, uh, thank you both uh, Brad and Elise for your time tonight. And it's, it's wonderful to hear your stories. And, and certainly we have some questions for you and I'll, I'll point out to the audience as well, if you want to submit any questions uh, while we are discussing tonight, feel free to, and we will, um, I don't know, we'll get to those. Um, I suppose first, uh, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll start out going a bit broader. So, uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll nail into um, some of the things that both um, you've mentioned, Brad and Elise. So I suppose um, throwing back to you, Elise, uh, Looking broadly, what would you say are the key um, geographic opportunity areas for young people to kind of intern um, and start their careers in the Asia Pacific? Um, and, and does this differ by, by sector? Yeah, I think uh, it's an interesting question, James, because I see it from a different perspective in terms of instead of looking, I guess, at the, um, the key geographic opportunity areas, I think you need to be looking as a student at, well, what what is my discipline and and what's that sector and going out to the region and thinking where can i learn what and thinking about what's most beneficial in terms of something that's mutually beneficial so if you're going to go to a country you can also learn but what can you give 
And so that's about, you know, collaboration. Um, but I think that you need to find a country that you have a connection with, but also not just connection, but also that that's relevant to your, your sector or what you're studying. And I think I'll provide an example of that is when I went to Hong Kong um, uh, to study and also intern, I worked for a project management company who is really experienced in delivering sophisticated projects in high dense populations. And so I took that example because I was thinking about Australia and thinking about urbanization and how we could in Australia could really benefit from learning from Hong Kong. And so I think that if we are looking at an looking at engaging with the region in terms of, you know, internships or study, but you need to be looking with that lens about also giving and you go, taking, but also giving. And so that would be probably the lens that I would take um, rather than, I guess, you know, providing a perspective of what's the key sectors for a, yeah, for your geography opportunity. That's a great point. What, what are you, do you have anything else to sort of add on that, Brad? Yeah, I think, one thing that we've learned from um, the, the current COVID situation is that as a nation, I think we need to really diversify our focus. And obviously myself, I started with my research in China because I knew it was such an important country to our economy. But uh, being an international education researcher, we'll see now how relying on one market for international students, all it takes is, is one thing that, that decimates that and we've completely lost an entire industry that's so important. It's, you know, our, our fourth largest export in Australia. And so now, particularly living in, in Vietnam, I'm really starting to see the value of diversifying our, our focus and our foreign policy across a number of different countries. And countries in Southeast Asia are booming at the moment. And, and as Elise said before, Vietnam's response to COVID has been incredible and, and renowned around the world. So. I think there's a lot of opportunities to engage in this growing market and, and I kind of encourage students to look broader than just the major economies in the region and really look at what value some of the other countries may have to your area of interest. Okay, interesting. Uh, so you mentioned some of the, the changes um, that have occurred due to COVID. So uh, in your opinion, emerging from COVID-19, what key changes do you think will occur for students um, or graduates looking to engage in the um, Asia Pacific region? And how do you think they can stay ahead of the pack with this time that they have at home? I think kind of sort of expanding on what uh, Rob said in his video, there's just because you're currently not able to travel, there's still a lot of opportunities to engage. And like you said, look for, you know, different blogs that you can write, submitting different articles to different areas, um, see how you can engage online. Um, you know, as an undergraduate student, it's, if you want a career in Asia, it's going to be really important that you still show yourself to be engaged with the region, even if it isn't physically in the region. Um, so I would really um, just say, sort of get out there and, and have a look at um, how you can engage without having to actually physically be in the country until things open up. Just, just in a, so, I mean, expanding from that, you know, Elise, you talk about having done, you know, volunteering and that kind of thing um, very early on in your career. Is that, is that a, a kind of viable option at the moment for, you know, working in Australia? Yes, certainly. I think that um, one of the things that our CEO, Penny Burt at AsiaLink says is that if you want to have a career with Asia or in Asia, it has to be bigger than your day job. And so all of us at AsiaLink, I can count them all, not just, um, we don't just do our core role, we all have voluntary engagements or mentoring or things like that. And I think that that is the reality in this, this type of sector, particularly if you're wanting to get ahead. So, you know, finding organisations, youth organisations are obviously the, the most, the easier ones to be involved in and particularly for this target market. And, you know, like I talked about the Australia-Vietnam Young Leadership Dialogue, there's the ASEAN one, there's, there's um, essentially a group set up for every single country. Um, but I think, James, it's, you know, beyond just, you know, volunteering, right? So bringing back to Brad's point is about how do we show up? How do we show that we're interested, even if we can't be in the region? And, you know, I spoke with Odin about this earlier on the week. How do we spend time now during, you know, the COVID period to get ahead in terms of learning language now? Now's, you know, better time than ever 
to start learning languages. You can connect with people in the region um, more now than ever. I think I was, um, I can count that I've actually engaged with Vietnam and um, new networks in Vietnam more since COVID has happened than before because initially I saw that I thought there was a geographical boundary but now there isn't and people are more open to actually having Zoom coffees and Zoom calls. So spend the time now preparing so when you do get in, when we can travel again, um, you're able to hit the ground running and you have the networks developed. You can speak a little bit of, of Vietnamese or Chinese or whatever your language is so you don't have to start from scratch and that's where I would be spending your time. Okay, that's a great point on um, meeting online and people having more time to meet online, especially overseas. Um, I guess that leads me to the next question. So, you know, obviously these have changed um, a lot due to COVID. Um, Brad, in fact, you mentioned earlier in the session that you got a position um, from dinner and the, the girl's father was, you know, had a position in the company. So obviously this is quite a different situation, not exactly your typical day-to-day -day scenario. But from your experience, um, how do you think internship um, and career opportunities differ from culture to culture? So like, is one approach to gaining an internship, like cold calling or networking, suitable to all cultures, or do you think you should approach different cultures according, or different cultures differently? I think, um, like I mentioned, particularly if you're looking for something uh, within the Asian region, and I, I hate to generalize because it's obviously lots of very varying cultures, but from my experience in China and working here in Vietnam is those people-to-people -people links are really crucial and people kind of say that as a buzzword now but it is it can't just be you know a one week trip that you did in your undergrad or a youth forum that you went on online you really do have to engage genuinely and once people see that you have that genuine interest that's when you really start to broaden your your network um so that's why I think it's real. It's, it is really important that you do spend that time in country because, and kind of going on what Elise said as well is one thing that I learned and I really regretted is I waited until I was in China to start learning Chinese. And that was my biggest regret because everyone that was there were leaps and bounds ahead of me. And I must admit, it's the Australians that were lacking in languages, the Americans, the Europeans, they had been studying Chinese since high school. They were speaking with government officials at events. And, you know, I was with the Australian group and every single one of us were complete beginners and didn't know any Chinese. And it's really not a good look as a, a country to continue to say that Asia is really important to our future and really important to us as a country and still not show that genuine interest and connection. And I think that needs to start in school and start with languages much, much sooner than what we do currently. It's interesting. Um, we talk about learning languages and engaging with cultures and, you know, at least you talk about expanding your networks more so um, now than, than ever before. And so I, I guess leading from that and, and, and thinking about engaging with cultures, what do you think uh, have been um, some of the biggest hidden cultural barriers for you um, Elise, and, and I'll reach out to you, Brad, afterwards. Um, you know, and, and, and how do they play out in your career su success? So I suppose, um, as a singular question, what are some of the hidden cultural barriers um, to career success in Asia um, as a young foreigner? And do you have any examples for those, Elise? Yeah. <laughs> and I think I've come across so many of these, but I'm actually going to go back to the point that Brad raised earlier around relationships. And... It sounds, it sounds like, you know, when we say relationships, you know, everyone knows how to build relationships. We, we get it. We're, we're used to building friends and networks. But when we go into Asia and depending on, you know, different cultures as well, um, I guess growing up in Australia, we're very task orientated. So we go into organisations, we go into internships. We're like, what's the task? What do I need to do? What can I produce in the first week? I need to get some early runs on the board. But that's not how it works. It's generally about meeting with your colleagues and spending time with your colleagues. And that can take anywhere from one month to six months before you actually develop anything, any task of substance, right? And like, it sounds really simple, but it's not until you experience it and that you realize this is actually true. 
And I think that that still is a, is a hidden cultural barrier that so many people forget about. And as Brad pointed out earlier, relationships are fundamental to any internship, uh, really any possibility um, in the region. And, you know, every, every job that I've had um, or opportunity uh, or even meeting my Vietnamese family, for example, um, have been through other people with people connection. And so I think that that for me is, is the kind of pinnacle. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that, Elise, because that was kind of going to be my example as well. I, when I first started working with UNESCO in Beijing, you know, it was my kind of my first role outside of my undergraduate in China. And I was so eager to please. And so in the first week, I was just trying to read everything and write things. And so I was just eating my lunch at my desk, which is a very normal thing in Australia. A lot of people just kind of eat at their desk while they're working and and my manager, who was Chinese, sort of pulled me aside and, and said, you know, it's, it's kind of offended a few of the girls that are in the team that you're not joining our big team lunch. So every day in Beijing, they would have two hour lunch breaks and an hour of it would be eating and talking and these big long banquets and then there'd be an hour of napping. So all the lights would be turned off and people would nap on their desk. It was a very new thing for me to kind of come across. And so here I was thinking I was doing the right thing and showing I was this gung-ho worker and I really wanted to try really hard. And in doing that, I had completely offended every single person that I had joined the team with. And in fact, I would have been much better sitting there having noodles and chatting for, for an hour and a half. And, and so it's just kind of those little learning curves that you have along the way where some things that just seem so normal to you can be offensive in another culture, so. Very interesting perspectives from both of you. I think that it's, it's interesting. I, I mean, it's interesting you say the whole thing about napping. It must be, I mean, it is a very foreign experience when everyone goes for a sleep in the middle of the working day and then continues to work for another sort of seven hours after having a sleep or something like that. Yeah. So I'll just point out um, we're, uh, we're coming to the end, almost the end of our session. So if, if anyone wants to add any questions, um, feel free to. I'll, I'll ask another question and then we'll, we'll go to a, a Q&A. So I, I think we've talked about, you know, continuing engagement in Asia and, and all the opportunities that you can do from Australia in developing links, whether that be through, you know, starting language training or whether that be through volunteering and joining organisations. But, you know, after this whole COVID thing ends and looking out to the future, um, what, what do you think the key changes will be for students or even graduates looking to engage in the region? And how can, you know, we really, um, you know, I, I know Odin kind of mentioned this before, but you know, how can we really shape our um, approach to engagement in the region going forward? Uh, I'll, I'll reach out to you, Elise. Yeah. And I think that, you know, being really honest with everyone on the call is that it's going to be more challenging, you know, now, um, I guess, a post-COVID environment than ever it has been before. But I don't think you should let a challenge um, deter you because the opportunities in the region uh, are incredibly fulfilling. Um, the key, I guess, tip that I want to share is I think you need to think about engaging with the region in a more creative way. And when I say creative, um, I say that not in terms of arts and culture. I think it's about doing things differently. No longer can we think about a career in the Asia Pacific as diplomacy. And you know, a typical diplomatic role that really is over. I think we need to think about how do we engage through business, through social and environmental um, organizations or initiatives or volunteering. And even, you know, hearing Brad's story and, you know, being a friend of Brad and seeing how he's um, gone through his own, um, you know, career in Asia and even mine and um, a few of our other colleagues um, that went to Griffith, we've all had very different career trajectories, but we've all engaged with the region creatively. And I urge you to put on that creative hat and think about what can I do different? And it's not just going to be through a traditional, um, you know, employment opportunity um, that you will be able to, you know, have success in the region. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, and, and I, I suppose extending from that is, is much what, um, we were talking about um, earlier, which is about, you know, branding or self-branding, right? And like how you, um, how, how you appear to people in the region. 
What do you think about, about this kind of thing, Brad? What do you think, do you think there'll be different challenges for people? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think I sort of, I've, I've been looking at it recently in my research from more of like a national sort of policy level. And I think the, the whole situation with COVID right now is really kind of highlighting some of those social and economic disparities that we have in the region. And with a lot of major powers and middle powers now kind of turning inwards and, um, you know, countries like the US uh, sort of moving away from that global engagement. This is now really an important time for Australia to be able to step up and say, we uh, want to engage with Asia and we want to do it in a way that is genuine. Um, and I think focusing on some of those areas, you, know, you look at the sustainable development goals. Um, as a student, if you can start to understand some of those global challenges within the region and how those countries uh, are tackling those issues and how Australia's role is tackling those issues, it doesn't matter what degree you're studying. If you want to be in Asia, that is invaluable knowledge. And every interview I've ever had and any conversation I've ever had, it's so important that you can show that you are well read around what are some of the major issues in the region. So, you know, building on your languages is one thing, but also building on your knowledge of what's going on in the region or in that particular country that you have an interest in. Because at the end of the day, if you show that you're genuinely uh, involved and interested in, in the issues in that area, uh, that will take you a long way. Mm. It's interesting you say that, you know, um, understanding different perspectives too. I think uh, an interesting thing for me to see when I first went to Vietnam was I wanted to learn about the Vietnam War. Of course, they call it the American War. And even more contemporarily, like thinking about the whole South China Sea issue, well, they call it the East Sea. And so it's very interesting and, and it's very valuable to learn those perspectives. Uh, now, we'll move into a quick um, Q&A. And I'm, I, I can see, Megan, you've mentioned something, but I'm just going to jump to... Jennifer's question because it kind of relates here and so Jennifer's question is basically um, you know she says that the world is getting increasingly uncertain especially in relation to China and Hong Kong and her question is is it still possible to pursue opportunities there and, and what are some of the things uh, that we should be aware of when we we pursue opportunities there and I, I guess I want to just add maybe something on the tail end there after what you said Brad and, and that is you know uh, Emerging from COVID, do we still look to China for the opportunities or do we, like you said, diversify? And if we diversify, what kind of countries should we look to? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. China is an incredibly important part of our relationship and it always will be. So that's not going to change. I think it's really looking at how do we diversify in a sense where we're not completely reliant on one country. So it's not about turning your back on a country. It's about looking at the region as a whole and, and, and kind of considering, well, how do we uh, have foreign policy that tackles strategically important areas beyond just one market? And then, I mean, working in Vietnam at the moment, I can really see uh, the benefits to an, a growing economy like uh, Vietnam. They, you know, a lot of my friends that are working here have actually moved from China as well. So a lot of the friends that I've made, their companies are moving their manufacturing to Vietnam because as an economy grows, their wages get more, that get higher and um, they call it the middle income trap where uh, countries can't quite make it into the services industry, but they're now too expensive to be a manufacturing industry. So a lot of those factories are now opening up in Vietnam. Vietnam has a lot of research into um, environment uh, with the Mekong Delta and the impacts of climate change happening here and also agriculture and supply chain management and um, SMEs and capacity building. There's so many opportunities here that I had never read about or never considered because my, I had always had this sort of focus on China my entire you know, PhD and and now that I've kind of taken more of an Asia focus or more of an Indo-Pacific focus, um, I can now really see the importance of some of those more emerging economies. Mm. Good advice. Um, so just sort of quickly throwing it out to you as well, Lise. I mean, um, I suppose going back to the, the, the root of Jennifer's question as well, 
you know, what, what are the kind of opportunities that, that young people can seek in China post COVID and, and what things should we, or, or, or should they be aware of when they're searching for opportunities? Well, I'm certainly not a uh, expert in the China space, but I don't think, um, I guess, de depending on the policy, you know, climate, the political climate that, you know, you have to be, you know, really across the situation. I don't think you should be going into China blindly. Um, so certainly continuing to stay up to date um, across the issues will be really important. Um, but I wouldn't, if you're really engaged uh, and really passionate about China, I certainly wouldn't let it, um, you know, dull your hopes. I, I probably can't give any any tips for engaging with China just because I simply um, haven't had that experience in the region. But I think, Brad, you might be better um, placed to, to provide that some tips for the students. Yeah, I think one of the, the things that you learn to navigate when you're living in China and particularly studying an area like politics is to try and sort of separate your uh, research and your opinions on uh, politics and, and open your mind to different perspectives. So many of my Chinese friends that I had taught me so much about how they see politics and how they see things like democracy. And, and I learned so much more just sitting and having a drink with my Chinese friends and chatting than I ever did in a classroom about how Chinese people view the world and, and politics and their leaders. And, and so I think you really do have to have an open mind and you can't be judgmental and, and come in with this one tracked vision of, of what politics and society is. And you do have some, some rocky times when, you know, I had one situation where I was in a taxi with my Chinese friend and, you know, I was practicing my terrible Chinese and the taxi driver started, you know, getting quite angry and telling a story. And I just, my, my Chinese was not good enough to understand at that point. And my um, Chinese friend said to me, he's, he's angry with your government because they came out uh, in the region today and, made a speech about China and, and I can't remember what it was at the time. I think it was about South China Sea. And, um, and it was a really tense conversation in, in a cab with a taxi driver. And I think it was through my friend that sort of we had that conversation and it's those personal connections that you have with people that get a country through rocky times. And, and I remember with my PhD, I was working at the Australia Studies Centre and the director at the time, David Walker, who's really big in the Australia-China space, he, he said to me that when he came back and there was, a lot of there was a lot of tension between Australia and China, he said it was, it was really uncomfortable with some of the academics at Peking University. But he said because he'd had eight, nine, ten years building those personal relationships, he said it took one beer and we were back to sort of being friends and chatting and laughing and and that's why governments see such value in things like public diplomacy. And because as Elise said, it's no longer just about government to government diplomacy. It's much, much more complex than that. And the personal relationships that we all build will be a really big part of Australia's future in the region. Great points. Look, we're, we're quietly over time. So what I'll do, I'll, I'll leave it on, we'll leave it on one last point. And I'm sorry, we can't get to Melissa's question, but Andrew has a really um, key question here, and, and it is key to our the, the core message we're getting at tonight. And it's, if you're a graduate or you're early in your career, what would be, um, perhaps in one sentence, what would be the, the first thing that you would do or learn to set yourself up for success in, in engagement, Elise? Surround yourself with uh, really great people, like Brad, um, and find a great mentor. Brad? I would say start reaching out now. Uh, when I was in my undergrad and I had never even been to Asia, I built some relationships with some professors that were in China. Um, and that was because I just emailed and I offered my services and I said, you know, could I help write a paper or help you write a blog? Or So just being at home doesn't prevent you from reaching out into the region. As Elise said earlier, we have so much access to people online now and people are more willing to meet online. So start reaching out to people that are in areas that you're interested in and offer your expertise. What, do you, what is your expertise? How can you assist them? And start to build those networks now. Wonderful. Well, look, 
thank you both for joining us tonight and a big thanks uh, to Rob as well and Griffith Asia Institute uh, for hosting this full series. It's been a wonder learning from you all and I'm sure that everyone that's, that's joined tonight will actually take away some meaningful um, points from tonight. So I, I wanna thank you on behalf of um, Odin myself and uh, I, I'm sure that uh, people will, uh, will, will reach out to you if they have any further questions and I'm sorry for anyone that I didn't get to tonight. So that brings us to the end of our session for tonight. Thank you for everyone uh, who was able to join and uh, we look forward to potential further collaboration. Uh, thank you everyone and have a wonderful week.